Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's episode, here's a quick message about a podcast from Ozzy, Take On America. Are all Black men progressive? Are all Asian American millennials politically engaged? This special audio series brings together people of the same race or ethnic background in order to shine a spotlight on their diversity and cut through the cultural stereotypes. Explore the range of opinions among groups of people who are often presumed to vote as a block. Get an inside look into the conversations these communities are having among themselves. Based on the groundbreaking TV show, Take on America with Ozzy is now available as a podcast. Check it out. Take on America, the podcast, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Mary Harris. I'm the host of Slate's new daily news podcast, What Next? And I have a question for you. Do you ever get a push notification or a news alert on Twitter and think, no, stop the news. I want to get off. Then What Next is the podcast for you. Each afternoon, we're going to break down that headline you've seen your friends retweeting all day and tell you what matters, what doesn't, and what next. Just look for What Next on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. See you there. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. My friends and I might still be 11, and we might still be in elementary school, but we know. We know life isn't equal for everyone, and we know what is right and wrong. We also know that we stand in the shadow of the Capitol, and we know that we have seven short years until we, too, have the right to vote. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. More women are running for office this year than ever before. We're telling their stories. We're also talking to experts about why women tend to run less and how Congress might change if it were to look more like the people it represents. This is the third of three episodes in which we're focusing on women whose careers have undermined the historic stereotype that women are weak. Well, Mr. Bradshaw, what's on your mind? Bearings, Inspector. She's a good one, too. Just look at that record. Okay, now, Walt, you've had your little joke. Give her to somebody else. I ask for a man. We don't have a man with her qualification. Seriously, Brad. If you treat her right, she might make you a darn good employee. What do you mean, treat her right? Get that chip off your shoulder. What's wrong with her? She's a woman, isn't she? We're determined to bring you as many stories as we can before November 6th. To that end... We're doubling our production, and we're going to put out two episodes a week through Election Day. Now let's get to our featured candidate. I'm Lauren Baer. I'm running for Congress in Florida's 18th Congressional District, and I'm 37 years old. Lauren was born in 1980, 64 years after the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, was elected to Congress, and 60 years after women first won the right to vote. 
I grew up right here in Florida's 18th district. In fact, I live right now just about five minutes down the road from my middle school. I grew up in a multi-generational family furniture business founded by my great-grandparents. So when I was growing up, my dad worked alongside his uncles and his cousins in this common enterprise. We sold furniture for a living. We talked about the world at the dinner table and current events, not politics per se, but my parents were always very cognizant of the fact that they wanted to talk to us like we were people, not just like we were kids. They wanted us to be aware of what was going on in our community and our country and in the world more broadly. It's kind of funny, actually, but Sunday nights used to be my mom's night off from cooking dinner. It was the one night my dad got to come home from the store early and he would always bring home takeout. It would be fried chicken or it'd be Chinese food. And we had this family tradition that we would all sit around together and watch 60 Minutes. And then we would talk about it. It's kind of a dorky thing to think about in retrospect. But what that did was just make me aware of all of the issues that were confronting people the world over. And the fact that I was a part of something much bigger and that actually I had the potential to change that. As Lauren grew up, She was exposed to cultures all over the world. She was drawn to the study of international relations. I grew up here, went to public schools, went off to college at Harvard and then Oxford and then Yale and ultimately took a different career path than furniture. When I left for college, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to study. I was interested in policy and government, but I was also very interested in science at the time. But I had a very transformative experience after my sophomore year in college. I worked abroad for the summer in India, in New Delhi, working for a human rights organization. Based upon that experience, I became very interested in studying international development and studying international relations. And that shaped the course of the rest of my college study. It was that experience and then subsequent experiences I had while I was in college, also working abroad in Guatemala that ultimately led me to apply to a Marshall Scholarship and is why I ended up at Oxford studying international development in a program with people from more than 20 different countries around the world. At Oxford, Lauren was treated by her peers as a representative of the U.S. and its policies, even the ones she didn't agree with. That experience pushed her towards a career with influence. I was doing that at the time when our country was becoming embroiled in the Iraq War. It was 2002 to 2004. And I remember just being acutely aware of how all of a sudden I was a representative of my country as a whole, how my classmates turned to me for justifications of our policies and decisions that our leaders were making. And I didn't always agree with those decisions. I came back from the UK, went to law school because I knew the law had such a transformative and important role in policymaking, had incredible experiences at law school, started my career as a litigator doing mostly international work 
But when the opportunity arose for me to join the Obama administration in early 2011, it was a no-brainer because I was able to work right at the intersection of the things that I studied that I loved and I was passionate about, law and politics, and to be in the Secretary of State's office and advise on issues of human rights and international law. It was a life-changing experience for me. It was a great privilege and a great responsibility. Lauren worked for the Obama administration for six years. She was a senior advisor to both of his secretaries of state and to the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. I was proud to go to work every single day that I was working in the Obama administration. I was proud to be in an environment where we didn't always get it right, but I was surrounded by people, both career civil and foreign servants and political appointees, who were trying their best to make the world a better place, both in our country and globally. They were trying to make sure that our policy matched up to the best of American values. And it was an incredible experience for six years to be in a working environment like that. Even so, Lauren did notice that she was in the minority as a woman in her role. That pushed her to speak up. There were incredible women in leadership positions during the Obama administration, some of whom I worked for. But it also remains the case that in the national security community writ large, women are still drastically underrepresented. And I remember on many occasions being in rooms where I would look around a conference table and I would count the women in the room and maybe I'd be the only one or the only one who was there as a decision maker as opposed to being a support staff or maybe I was one of two or one of three. And recognizing that still, despite all of the great strides we have made, we were still underrepresented. That made me even more serious, even more determined to always exercise my voice when I was given the opportunity. I was acutely aware that I had a seat at the table when other people didn't. And therefore, it was always my obligation to speak up, to offer my most candid and thoughtful opinions, and to make sure that I was pushing our policy in what I thought was the best direction possible. Lauren always felt a keen interest in public policy. She attributes some of that to her religious background. I'm Jewish, was raised in a family with strong Jewish values, and was raised being taught about the Holocaust and what happens when the world turns a blind eye to injustice, what happens when we look away, when the rights and dignity and humanity of uh, people are being ignored. And I think from that experience of learning about that, I took very seriously this mantra of never again. And I internalized the idea that our country was responsible for ensuring that human rights abuses anywhere were corrected, that an injustice anywhere in the world was an affront to American values, and that that is probably as much a reason as any that I committed 
my career to fighting for human rights and making sure that individuals who didn't necessarily have their voices heard weren't necessarily well represented, making sure that they had the same rights and were treated with the same dignity as anyone else on our planet. For most of her career, Lauren's drive to make the world a better place pushed her into jobs that helped form policy. It was only after the last presidential election that she decided it was time to step into politics herself. I was working in the administration up until the very end, but there had been something you know, very personal that had happened in my life two weeks before the presidential election, which was that I gave birth to a baby girl. And I just remember in the two weeks between October 22nd and November 8th, my wife Emily and I were so excited about the world our daughter was being born into. We were so excited that she was being born into a world where she would know no limits to her aspirations. And then I remember our utter surprise and despair with the results of the election and the realization on the morning of November 9th that the world she was actually born into was very different than the one we thought she was being born into. And that just led to some deep introspection on my part. Many people felt that way. The despair drove some, like Lauren, to step up and run. Julie Dolan has talked about this with candidates she's interviewed. Julie's a professor of political science at McAllister College. One of the questions that we've asked is whether Hillary Clinton's candidacy and loss had any effect on their decision to run, you know, seeing this woman that gave it her all and ended up losing to Donald Trump, or whether or not Donald Trump's candidacy and his subsequent victory had any impact on their decision to run. And going in, we really didn't know what we were going to find, but we're finding that it's far more common for women to say that they're running in 2018 specifically because of Trump, that they dislike his policies, they dislike the way in which he comports himself, the way that he talks about other people, the way that he disparages people, that he's ruining our democracy as we know it, and so they have to stand up and do something about it. Or just that seeing him and the way that he was able to get away with so much misogyny on the campaign trail was something that inspired them to run. Many women are angry, and that anger has fueled action. Here's Christina Lefebvre-Latner. She teaches women's and gender studies at California Polytechnic State University. This is not the 1950s anymore. It's not even the 2012s anymore. But, you know, we've come a little bit further, but I also think women are angry and they're just not going to stand for it anymore. And they realize that a change has to happen. And if we're not going to do it, who is going to do it? You know, a lot of women are running because they want things to be different for their children, for their daughters. You hear a lot of moms running for office saying that I want it to be different for my daughter. And they realize that someone's got to take the stand and they've got to do it. Women's rights are at stake and people have been lackadaisical for a while. They're realizing that something has to be done. A quick aside. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. If you want to learn more about how women's anger is shaping our conversation, there are a number of new and exciting books on the subject. I recommend Rage Becomes Her by Soraya Kamali and Good and Mad by Rebecca Traster. Or if you want to escape politics altogether, Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and original content to peruse. My co-founder Shira has been talking up Cersei for weeks. 
you can get a free audiobook of your choosing if you go to audibletrial.com slash women belong in the house. Yes, I said any audiobook you choose for free. Check it out at audibletrial.com slash women belong in the house. Let's get back to Lauren. I started thinking about how I could have impact in the age of Donald Trump and how I could create the kind of world I wanted my daughter to live in. To be honest, running for office was not the first thing I thought of. It wasn't even, you know, thing number five, thing number 10. But I came to that ultimately uh, from a different woman in my life, my mom, Nancy. And she's someone who's been chronically ill for more than two decades. The day before the Affordable Care Act repeal vote, she actually called her congressperson, told him about her life about her multiple pre-existing conditions, about how if the Affordable Care Act were repealed and insurance companies could once again have lifetime and annual caps on coverage, that she would be totally uninsurable. And our congressperson, he listened to her and then he went and voted to repeal the next day. That jeopardized health care for my mom, but it also jeopardized health care for 74,000 other people in our district. So for me, that was really the if not now, when, if not me, who moment. I realized that I always wondered what I would do at a time when I felt like our values, our institutions were really under threat in our country. And the answer quite simply was I was going to get in the arena and I was going to fight and I was going to do it for my own mother and my own daughter, but also every other mother, father, son, daughter in the district because the stakes were just too high. Women often shoulder the burden of more of the emotional labor in households. That means taking care of both the young and the old. That can hold women back from adding additional work like running for office. This election, though, Many have said they felt it was too important to sit back. Here's Maria Stark. She's the co-founder of Emerge America, an organization that recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. Women have more care obligations than men. And while that hasn't changed, I would say that the 2016 election also has made women put those concerns about their extra labor burden with children and aging parents and sick family members, that they've put it aside. They feel like this is so critical. And I think that urgency, that may decline over time, but it's very strong now. You know, I do think that women are partly motivated by fear and anger. I was at the Javits Center when I expected Hillary Clinton to come to the podium 25 feet from where I was standing to become the first woman elected president. And when I walked out of that Javits Center around 11 p.m. in New York City, I felt less safe. I mean, it was a visceral change in my personal safety. So I do think that that sense of the world has changed around me has affected a lot of women in this country. Lauren has found healthcare to be the top issue for people all over Florida's 18th district. Here's some background on the area. 
Florida's 18th congressional district starts just north of Mar-a-Lago in Florida. It's one of the most closely drawn swing districts in the country. We're about 40 percent Democrat, 40 percent Republican, 20 percent independent. And it's a district that has ping-ponged back and forth between different parties over the years. The issues that are most important to my community, probably threefold. First one is healthcare. There are so many folks in our community who are worried about the rising costs of healthcare, about the limited choices, about decreasing quality of care. And they're currently represented by a congressperson who's been taking votes that will take care away from people in our community instead of expanding it. Second real issue of concern in our community is the environment. Our water is our way of life here. And it's something that we enjoy not only for recreational purposes, but it's the heart and soul of our economy as well. And then, of course, folks are concerned about bread and butter economic issues. The stock market is booming, but I talk every day to folks who are working more than 40 hours a week and they still can't make ends meet. I talk to seniors who ask how it is that Congress gave a massive tax cut to corporations and the ultra wealthy, but now they're talking about putting Medicare and Social Security on the chopping block. In many ways, even though Lauren spent years as part of the former presidential administration, she's an unusual political candidate. I wasn't recruited to run. I look a lot different than candidates who've traditionally run for office. I'm a woman. I'm a mom. I'm a member of the LGBT community. When it really comes down to it, Lauren says the people in her district are more interested in talking about her policy priorities than her identity. I have to tell you, to be totally honest, as a candidate, most people don't really want to talk to me about my identity. They want to talk to me about the issues. When I'm out there talking to my future constituents, we're talking about health care. We're talking about the environment. We're talking about good public schools and how to build a strong and inclusive economy. We're not talking about who I'm married to or the fact that I'm a woman versus a man. But they'll say that On a personal level, being someone who has been in the position of being discriminated against, who knows what it feels like to have to personally defend my rights, that's made me a more empathetic person. And I think it's made me a stronger fighter for every person who's ever felt left out or discriminated against or left behind. I think it makes me even more of a champion for everyone in our country, whether that is racial minorities, ethnic minorities, religious minorities. I know that our country is best when it lives up to our promise of liberty and justice for all Americans. And I'm just firmly committed to fighting for that. Studies have shown that generally women in office work to amplify more diverse voices. Here's Debbie Walsh. She's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. Women are more likely to be more inclusive in their leadership style 
They are more likely to make sure that the voices that aren't normally heard at the table are heard, and not just the voices of women, but the voices of people of color, of low-income people. They say that about themselves, and their male colleagues say it about them as well. So they're bringing those voices to the table, and I think they're changing the way government works. Women also tend to reach across the aisle more. Working in government taught Lauren that sometimes fighting for what's right means fighting to find middle ground. I think my experience working in government has certainly shaped how I approach politics and policymaking, which is to say that I learned you really can't accomplish anything in Washington or anything in any policy space unless you're a consensus builder. You have to be able to sit down at the table with folks who have opinions that are different from your own. And those might be people who are from another political party or they might be folks within your own party, but from a a different wing. And you have to be able to look at the issue, figure out what your common goals are and how you can work towards them together. For me, the big lesson was really that effective policymaking depends on consensus building and being able to be the kind of person who can find a way forward and turn good ideas into action. Typically, women have waited until their kids are older and out of the house before they run for office. Lauren's one of a number of candidates this year who've defied that norm. There are so many barriers to running for office particularly for women and particularly for women who are also caregivers and who are holding down jobs and trying to fulfill the myriad other responsibilities that women have. Running for office is not an easy thing to do by any stretch of the imagination. But I think what we've seen this year is so many women around the country saying, Enough is enough. Enough with sitting on the sidelines. Enough with staying out just because it's hard to elbow your way in. It's our turn. I'm acutely aware every day of the privileges that I have that enable me to be able to run for office. I have an incredibly supportive spouse who is right now both our primary wage earner and our primary caregiver for our daughter. We have a wonderful and supportive extended family that's helping us along on our journey. These aren't things that are available to all women who might have the inclination and the talent and the skills to run. So I am firmly, firmly committed to trying to pave the way for other women to follow in my footsteps to try to make it easier for women of all stripes to run for office. I think that our policy is better when it's informed by a diversity of opinions, when it's made by lawmakers with diversity of life experiences, when those people who are ultimately voting on laws look and think a little bit more like the folks who those laws are ultimately going to impact. And this is why I firmly believe that when Congress is more reflective of our country as a whole, that we end up with legislation that's better. Having a young child means understanding firsthand the priorities of new parents. Here's Tori Van Oot. She's a freelance political reporter based in Minneapolis. 
She's covered elections all over the country. You are definitely seeing this year more women running with kids and small kids in particular or non-traditional family structures, whether it's same-sex couples, whether it's single parents. You're seeing more of that and or more visibility of that. When you talk to women who are mothers, especially the mothers of young children who serve in office, They will tell you that this is an invaluable perspective that they bring to the table. You know, they understand the cost of child care. They understand why you might need nursing or lactation rooms in an airport. You know, I've interviewed a young state legislator in New York who proposed this bill to require some of the busiest airports in the country, JFK and LaGuardia, to have lactation rooms, which they didn't have permanent spaces before. And the reason she came up with this idea was because She was on a flight for work as a young member of the assembly and her flight was delayed and she needed somewhere to pump. And that's something that no matter how closely he's listening to his constituents, it just might not be top of mind for a, say, 65-year-old male legislator who's been serving for a long time. So I do think that the perspective of mothers and mothers of young children is a really important one to have as part of the discussion, you know, as part of the legislative and governing process. But we also know that our current governmental and political structures are not made for women and parents and young parents. Senator Tammy Duckworth had to get special accommodations this year for maternity leave after giving birth. I believe she was the first U.S. senator to give birth while in office. There have been studies that women make better policy when it comes to women and children. That's Amanda Hunter. She's the communications director for the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. The foundation has done research about how family structures affect women candidates. On the barriers in voter perception, it's so fascinating because have you ever heard anyone ask a male candidate or politician who's taking care of his children? I don't think that I have. But women report that they get those questions all the time on the campaign trail. And we did a study called Modern Family, and it was fascinating. It was focus groups because families have really evolved considerably since the 1960s. But with that study, we really found that voter expectations haven't kept up with the way that families have changed. So this year in particular, there's more millennial women running for office. And it makes sense that motherhood has been so front and center because many of those candidates have small children. This research shows that voters are particularly concerned about the effect of a campaign on a woman with small children. And they're upfront about wanting to know who's taking care of the children. And they want to hear specifically about the candidate's support system for taking care of the children. In focus groups, people actually admitted that they had a double standard for women candidates, but then still actively participated in the double standard. And on the flip side, if a woman is single and or has no children, voters worry that she may not be in touch with their lives. So in a year with so many women running and so many women putting their family front and center, whether it's about their children or we've seen other candidates talking about siblings and parents with addiction issues or looking at high health care costs through the prism of family. We're really looking closely here at the foundation to see if this year some of these stereotypes finally change. And even though not all of these women will be successful in their racers, we're really glad that they're changing those stereotypes and changing the conversation. Studies about whether it's harder for women with young kids to win elections send a mixed message. Some research says it's helpful. Some, not so much. 
Here's Kathleen Dolan with more. She's a professor and the chair of the political science department at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Jill Greenlee, Laurel Elder, there are several other political scientists who work, uh, Brittany Strasberg, focusing on motherhood status and, and fatherhood status. And they sometimes find situations in which motherhood status could be a negative for some women. But again, there are times when it could be a positive. One of the things that we see in American politics is that there are cycles of issues and elections about which we care. And if we have an election during a time where we're in an actively hot war somewhere in the world, domestic issues may not be as central. If we are in an election cycle when home front issues and education and healthcare and those sorts of issues are up for, then sometimes voters are focused on a completely different set of issues. So we see women candidates playing to their motherhood status sometimes when those are issues voters care about. We see men doing the same thing. This election is in some ways sort of an extraordinary one, and it's most comparable past election is obviously the election of 1992 after the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings. We still in the business call 1992 the year of the woman. In most elections, women as women and gendered issues don't play as large a focus in the election cycles. So I don't think 2018 compares to 2016 or 2014 necessarily in the same sorts of ways. But in general, in the last 30 years, you know, women candidates have moved from a time where they might have been told, don't show your small children, don't be seen as too soft, don't be seen as a mother, to a world in which they are much freer to show their family and to be who they are and to not worry that looking like a mother means that they look weak. Lauren's district may be known as an older part of the country. Florida is filled with snowbirds, after all. But she says she's inspired by the activism she sees in young people who've stepped up to help her campaign. The young vote is vital for Democrats like Lauren to flip districts that are currently red. Here's Tori Van Oot again. Young voters, folks in their 20s, college students, are notoriously bad about turning out midterm elections. They just do not vote in these non-presidential elections. There are signs that that could be changing. A lot of groups are reporting upticks in voter registration, especially among younger people. There are a lot of groups working really hard to turn out these people. You're seeing more higher levels in interest. You know, Refinery29, one of the places I work, did a poll on voter interest ahead of the elections, and we found engagement was very, very high. A majority of young women said that they were more engaged in the election than they had been in politics and they had been in years past, but they weren't all sure if they're going to vote. And whether these young people vote will be a real deciding factor in this election. Lauren's optimistic. Here she is again. I am so inspired every day by the young people who volunteer their time for my campaign. Florida's 18th congressional district tends to be thought of as an older district. Half of our constituents are over the age of 55. But in the wake of the Stoneman Douglas shooting, the young people in my community have been activated in a way 
unlike anything I have seen in my lifetime. And those same young activists who went out and organized local March for Our Lives rallies the Monday after, they showed up in my campaign office and they said, we recognize that change isn't going to be made from rallying alone. We need to elect new leaders. We need to elect different leaders. We need to elect individuals who are actually committed to taking action on the things that we care about. And these young folks have volunteered so many hours to our effort. They worked tirelessly over the summer. Now that we're in the school year, they are coming to volunteer for our campaign after school and on the weekends. One of our amazing volunteers spent her 17th birthday in our campaign office and then showed up just a few hours after she took the SATs. And I look at them and I see the future. I see hope for our democracy, because if out of tragedy and despair, these young people can become so engaged, if they can see a light at the end of the tunnel, I think that gives hope to all of us and gives each and every person who's involved in the political process reason to get up another day and keep fighting. Lauren says her worldview was partially shaped by her religion. On Thursday, we're going to bring you the story of a woman who says her democratic values stem from her Christian faith. It's funny because for me, they're so related. You know, I'm a Democrat because I'm a Christian. It's not that I just happen to be both. I'm a Democrat because the Bible tells me that we're supposed to feed the hungry and care for the sick and welcome the stranger and liberate the captive. And to me, that means we have to fully fund SNAP so that we can feed the hungry. And for me, they're so intertwined. And I haven't felt unwelcome in the Democratic Party, but I have felt like it's a gap in the Democratic platform. More on that coming to you on Thursday. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you liked it, please tell your friends. If you didn't, let me know. Let's start a conversation. This movement's about reaching out to the other side and increasing empathy for different views. You can find me on Twitter, at Jenny M. Kaplan. Follow us on Instagram, at WMN.media. Or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you on Thursday. <laughs>